Hello, and welcome back to Deviant Little Darlings. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And if you love hearing stories about all things taboo, scandalous, and out of this world, you are in the right place. Okay, before we get too deep into the podcast, I wanted to take it a little personal and give a little shout out to my Auntie Kathy. Uh, we got our first little um, fan mail on Instagram the other day. Mm-hmm. It was so cute. So thank you so much, <laughs> Auntie Kathy, for um, reaching out. And I'm glad you're listening and enjoying the podcast. Yeah, thank you for listening. It's very exciting when people enjoy what we're doing. Speaking of a fun update, we are on Apple Podcasts now, so please rate and review us and keep listening because we want you to. (laughs) Absolutely. And send in those DMs on Instagram or our email because it's always so fun to hear from you guys. We don't always know. We can't see who's listening. So if you're listening, um, just let us know and we'll appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Give us a little shout just so we know. Maybe we'll reply to your email. Who knows? Oh, yeah. We're very good at replying because we don't have very many emails. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so let's get straight into the QQOTD quarantine question of the day. Um, Yes. Yes. So, Katie, what is something that you don't miss from before quarantine? Like something from, you know, regular life that can't really happen anymore? Okay. Let me tell you, I, you know, used to work at Anthropology. It's a clothing store shout out. Um, And I love working there and I miss working there. But obviously with COVID, that's a little unrealistic right now. But what I don't miss is that they started scheduling me for these shifts that started at 6 a.m. So I'd have to be there at 6, get up at like 4.30 because I'm just high maintenance and need the time to get ready. (laughs) And it was just horrible. I was like literally at work before the sun rose and there were only like three of us there unpacking these giant boxes of clothes that they're shipping to us. And it was just like inventory a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a morning person. I was like, why would someone go shopping at Anthropology at six in the morning? But then I realized. (laughs) Yeah. Customers don't come until 10 a.m. So. Oh my God. It's four hours without anyone there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's like, you're constantly working the whole time. It's quite intense. Well, I'm glad you don't have to do that anymore. Me too. But now I was getting in like a good sleep cycle. You know, I was like, Mm. my body was waking up early. Everything was good. But now I wake up at like 11am. And (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to go back to school in the fall, but everything's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. (laughs) So is there something you do not miss? Yes. And I actually thought beforehand that we were going to say the same thing but we obviously aren't because I don't work at anthropology but I definitely do not miss all the crowds of people everywhere oh Um, yeah I everyone who knows anyone who's like lived in Seattle knows that the second the sun comes out swarms of people come outside and everything Mm -hmm. gets super crowded because it's so rare and everyone wants to take advantage of the nice weather but now it's been I mean today it's rainy but the past couple of weeks, mm. it's been so beautiful and sunny and you can actually go out to the park or, you know, just walk around your neighborhood and have space to be, you know, alone and obviously respectful and not getting too close to anybody. But since, yeah. yeah, since people aren't really, you know, having huge gatherings, thankfully, it's so peaceful outside. You can actually enjoy the area. So that is so nice. nice. Also, traffic has been so light. I don't know if it's been like that in Seattle, but it's been unreal. Okay, it was like that. Like for a month and a half, there was no traffic. And then (laughs) starting this weekend, there was like some serious traffic. I don't know if everyone's just like sick of being at 
at home or something. Oh man. But people are getting restless and the streets are filling up and I'm, I'm not liking it. That's the funny thing. Like, I feel like California traffic is usually pretty bad, but it's like at predictable times. I feel like Mm -hmm. Seattle traffic is just all the time, no matter where you're going or what's happening. Right. Well, it'd be so weird because we would, I would drive like on the freeways during like five o'clock, which is rush hour. You know, everyone's getting off of work (laughs) and usually it takes an hour. And then lately it's like, no, not a single car. But now it's like the weird random traffic again, where it's like 1 p.m. on a Sunday (laughs) And everything's backed up. And I'm like, where are you all going? Like, what are you yeah, doing? What the heck? Yeah. Oh, man. Seattle. I miss it. <laughs> so, yeah, there's not, there's some things that are pretty good about quarantine. You know, it's not all bad. Right. Exactly. Gotta keep it positive. Keep it light. Speaking of positivity and lighthearted things and, you know, all things good, Katie, do you have a deviant, scandalous story for us? Oh, boy, do I. I am super <laughs> excited about this, actually. Um, so last week I mentioned that my dad sent me like a potential podcast story idea and let me just say he like really delivered. So thank you dad for making it possible for me to not have to come up with a story on my own this week, uh, because (laughs) I'm bad at that apparently. I think we're just going to start crowdsourcing all of our stories because seriously, lately we've, we've been taking them from all of our friends and family. Because everyone just keeps throwing these like wonderful ideas at us and I can't think of a single one by myself. (laughs) So, you know, I'll take it. But basically, I'm super excited because this is a really good story and I hope I do it justice. Um, So here we go. Just off the coast of Long Island, New York, where my dad grew up, just so everyone knows, um, there's a tiny little three-mile-long speck of island called Plum Island. Olivia, have you ever heard of it? No, I've never heard of Plum Island. Okay, like, actually, you really have to, like, zoom in on Google Maps to even notice it, because I looked it up, because I was like, what is this? Um, And it's only one mile across at its widest point. So it sounds pretty insubstantial, and like I said, I had never heard of it before my dad sent me this article. But, you know, maybe if you grew up on the East Coast, you're familiar with the mind-boggling conspiracy theories that surround what exactly happens on Plum Island. So, oh yeah, just a little background, and I'm adapting most of this from an article from MysteriousUniverse.org, but Plum Island was purchased in 1899 by the United States government to be used as a small military base, Fort Terry, which was mostly used as a guard or watch post. And then... Jumping ahead a little, when World War II began, the location allowed it to serve as an anti-submarine outpost, where the government was on the lookout for enemy submarines traveling along the coast, naturally. Um, And after the war, submarine threats apparently weren't our biggest problem anymore, so they halted that, and the Army Chemical Corps used the land for some time, until 1954, when the U.S. Department of Agriculture turned the island into the Plum Island Animal Disease Center. So here, the main focus was to research animal-borne diseases that could wipe out U.S. livestock and to develop vaccines for them. Okay? Sounds pretty standard, you know, just government island, whatever. But it gets interesting. Mm. So the specifics of what they were researching were always kept very close to the vest. And on top of that, the Department of Agriculture quickly locked down the island, like boosting security and posting signs warning people to stay away. And their security certainly enforced that, like boats could not even come close. 
So basically, the author of the article that I read suggests that this like sudden secrecy is really what ignited the mystery and conspiracies that are now associated with Plum Island. You know, like panic allowed people to believe like, hmm, maybe there's more happening on this super secret government island than they're telling us. Yeah, why would they be so secretive if it's just animal vaccines? Exactly. So let me tell you. One of Plum Island's most infamous conspiracy theories is that the facilities were actually used to research biological weapons, and apparently they weren't always the best at containing what they were experimenting with, because a mysterious new disease surfaced in the 1970s just 13 miles away from Plum Island in a Connecticut town called Old Lyme. You can probably guess it's what we know today as Lyme disease. So if you don't know, Lyme disease can cause aches and pains and fever, fatigue, swelling, stiffness, headache, a rash that looks like a bullseye, and sometimes even paralysis. Yeah, kind of gross. Not good. (laughs) Um, Um, When you said Lyme, I was thinking, because since you said plum, I was thinking of like limes. (laughs) And I know what Lyme disease is, but it took me a second in my head to be like, what is like the fruit relation? What is like? Yeah, what's happening? Tropical fruity island. But no, I I get it. (laughs) Yeah. So Lyme disease, not limes as in lemons. (laughs) Anyway, um, so people were super baffled at where this disease and its new terrible symptoms came from and why it was so prevalent in this one town. So naturally, scientists started studying it and found that it was spread through deer and ticks, as we know today. But the bacteria was unlike anything that they'd ever seen because it was capable of wreaking so much havoc on the body, creating unexpected complications like schizophrenia or severe brain infections. And all of these factors made Lyme disease very suspicious to conspiracy theorists because it's extremely complex and seemingly just materialized out of nowhere. And because it's so close to the secret shrouded Plum Island, people began to believe that Lyme disease was actually created in the island's mysterious government labs. Ooh. Ooh. (laughs) So about 15 years ago, an attorney named Michael Carroll published a book which sort of incriminates Plum Island. Um, He compiled declassified documents and insider interviews. And Carroll claims that after World War II, a German scientist named Eric Traub, question mark, um, <laughs> came to Plum Island to research insects like ticks as a vehicle for disease. He allegedly hoped to develop diseases that you could infect insects with intentionally and use them as a bioweapon against unsuspecting enemies. And Carol believed that Traub's research created Lyme disease, which was accidentally spread to one of the many birds that called the island home and carried to old Lyme. So you know, incriminating. (laughs) Some other declassified articles do offer a little evidence in favor of this. Apparently, there was some intent of using the diseases studied on Plum Island for the purpose of destroying Russian food supplies in the 1950s. And even more documents suggest a biological warfare program took place until it was shut down by Nixon in 1969. There's also claims that the lab was looking into a vaccine-resistant form of anthrax. So take that as you will. Yeah, not the best, but I will say there are numerous sources that disagree with this, saying ticks and Lyme disease were never studied on Plum Island, and the government continues to insist that all biological research done was purely in regards to defense. But when it comes to conspiracies of this magnitude, like who knows who to trust, right? Yeah, it's like their word against everyone else's. While this investigation, like this article came out, were they still like working on the island? 
so yeah people still like work there to this day oh my gosh so who knows what's going on <laughs> okay everyone you heard it here first that's where covid came from plum island <laughs> oh my god plum island <laughs> So yeah, Plum Island really didn't help their case that they weren't suspicious or sketchy when the Department of Homeland Security took over in 2003 and repurposed the space as the National Bio and Agro Defense Facility. So it sounds all fine and well, but all of a sudden, everyone who worked on the island had to take special government ferries equipped with armed guards. And now on top of being told to stay away, regular folks were also warned not to even take photographs of the island. So, I mean, the government attributes this to higher security post 9-11, which I suppose is reasonable, but I don't know. Is it suspicious? Maybe. (laughs) This is where it gets even like crazier because now people start believing that Plum Island is a secluded site for experimenting on animals and humans. Oh my God. Oh yeah. You might be ready to call BS on the conspirators now. I was like, so was I. But astonishingly, there's some evidence to be considered here. So... In 2008, at Ditch Plains Beach, again, just 10 short miles from Plum Island, a horrible, unidentifiable animal carcass washes ashore. So it's called the Montauk Monster, and if you want to be traumatized, Google it. It may be worse than the head in the jar Olivia posted on our Instagram (laughs) a few weeks ago. Again, another little shameless plug for our Instagram, so follow us at DeviantLittleDarlings. Seamless, seamless plug. Yeah. Thank you. So just a little gruesome detail here. The animal was like pretty chunky with thin legs, claws, and a long skull with pointy teeth and maybe a beak. Um, Its skin was leather-like and almost hairless except for a few like patches of hair. And it had a tiny little tail. So it doesn't really look like any animal that walks this good earth. Truly, I'd think it was a fake CGI alien movie prop or something. Did you just look it up? Yeah, I just Googled it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I just saw Olivia's face turn into, like, complete shock, and I knew she must be looking at it. It looks like the body of a pig with the face of a platypus bird with (laughs) lobster claws. Like, I don't even... Yeah, it's horrible. Oh, my God. It's really bad. But I'm confused because on Google Images, there's so many different ones. Like... Mm -hmm. They're all in different positions. They're different colors, different face features. I think some are like based on like things that people like. I think not all of them are like real, but I can send you like the real one afterwards if you want to look at it because it's kind of crazy. Um, So the experts that analyzed these photos to see if it was a hoax said if it was, it would be like the best executed hoax they'd ever seen. And again, because of the proximity to Plum Island, people believed that it was an escaped mutant that drowned and ultimately washed ashore. So the most prominent rational theory out there is that it was a super bloated and nasty dead raccoon. But honestly, it's super hard to imagine the Montauk monster like rifling through your trash bin because it doesn't. Does not look like a raccoon. Right? I just, I don't. I have a hard time believing that, but. Even more suspiciously, the body was never officially examined, so the photos are like the only debating point. I know. Wouldn't you think that they would look into that? The government definitely swooped it up and like took it Mm -hmm. off because you could definitely just do a little DNA test and see what animal it is, right? Right. You'd think. So it must be very hush-hush is what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. And then a year later in 2009, a nearly identical carcass was found in the same area. But again, it seems to be clouded in a lot of uncertainty and there's not really a record of what happened to it. I actually do see a picture now that's like they took the Montauk monster 
photo and then they put like a raccoon image on top of it mm-hmm. and it i guess the anatomy looks like it does kind of match up but so i saw that and i was like i thought the same thing i was like okay yeah. it kind of makes sense but like i don't i mean i don't know what raccoon anatomy is like you yeah know? i'm really not an expert <laughs> you just see him crawling along the side of the street in seattle <laughs> my favorite picture is jumping this out one. of bushes yeah this is one of like this carcass thing and then there's like a little golden retriever like sniffing it <laughs> oh no <laughs> he came across it on the beach it was like what's this <laughs> let's just investigate oh golden retrievers thank you so good um okay so to make things worse for plum island um in 2010 a security guard patrolling the southwest end of the island so this time on the island found what people believe is a freaky mutated human body um apparently the body was a 6'2 male wearing cargo pants a short sleeve shirt and brown loafers which sounds pretty chill but his (laughs) yeah right pretty normal like just office wear um (laughs) not the cargo pants but you know what sounds like a frat bro actually (laughs) yeah you're kind of right um the only thing here was that his fingers were extremely unnaturally elongated and yeah there were no signs of trauma to the body besides five perfectly symmetrical holes in his head but it was unclear if they were created before or after death and to make this even Mm. crazier the local police searched military and criminal databases missing persons list and fingerprint records but could not find a match for the mysterious john doe because of all of this, especially the government secrecy, people believe that there's some big-time human experimentation happening on the island. And I tried looking him up, and there's no, like, photos that I yeah. could find. I just looked some up, um, too. There's, like, some sketches, but nothing, like, super specific. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure if this was actually, like, a government conspiracy, like, they wouldn't want those photos yeah. out there. So, you know, just a thought. What I'm wondering, though, is... Okay, if they were experimenting on people and this was like mm-hmm. a mutated guy, what, why long fingers? Like, what does that, right? <laughs> what benefit does that no give idea. you? Yeah, I have no clue. Maybe it was like an accident. Maybe they were trying to do something else, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so like the story goes or what like conspiracy theorists believe is like he like was escaping from a lab and that's oh. why he was like found by the security guard. So, oh, maybe the security guard say. was like looking for him because perhaps they were on high alert that their long-fingered man got out yeah (laughs) oh god have you ever seen that um video i think it's like a tiktok or something but it's this guy who has like insanely long thumbs like his thumb is the length of like two normal fingers oh god and he like holds it next to things to like prove that it's not fake it's so weird so maybe i have not seen that but maybe maybe he's like like, a descendant of this man (laughs) <laughs> that's really funny and specific and i'm gonna have to go look for this guy on tiktok now i guess i guess um, we'll have to link it in our instagram yeah please <laughs> um but yeah plum island is apparently scheduled for a shutdown in 2023 they're like building a whole new place somewhere in the middle of the country um so i implore someone to perhaps purchase the land and the labs and do a little sleuthing because maybe they'll leave some hints behind you know yeah any listeners who can afford you know an <laughs> island in new york just exactly not? you know spend your money on that instead of like i don't know college <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah that's kind of all i have about it but it's super interesting and i asked my dad i was like did you like know about plum island growing up because it's right there 
And he was like, I mean, yeah, we knew, but at the time it wasn't like super clear who owned it. Mm. And, you know, you'd go boating by and it'd be like super secret and like guards. So, you know, it's always been a little mysterious. That's so interesting. I've never heard of it. And I, I know, I feel like that would have been the perfect, okay, we're going back. I think that'd be the perfect thing for like supernatural or like Mm X-Files to do an episode on. Mm -hmm. I love those like government conspiracy where it goes all the way to the top and right cover up and everything it's just very suspicious to me so i would love to get some more info i mean i read something that like one of the scientists that work there is like we publish all of our research but do they really you know no exactly so someone else can do a little digging if they feel inclined (laughs) yeah i Cannot get over that little animal thing. Like the mon- the Montauk it's monster. It's so creepy. It's so creepy because it has like sharp big teeth, but then it has a big nose bone. It's like mm-hmm. huge. And then it looks like it still has f- some fur attached to it. So it was like Yeah, but like furry. little clumps. Yeah. It's super weird. And then its arms are all like jiggly and he has like claws. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It seems weird especially weird that like two of like almost the exact same like situation would wash up right there and like nearly a year later so i don't know how many raccoons are just drowning out there so (laughs) raccoons do they even like go in the water why would that i don't know i feel like that doesn't even happen i know that was a great story katie thank you so much to your dad for um sharing that one because right that was so cool He's so good. I'm just going to wait for my dad to send me things. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> would you like to tell us your story? I absolutely would. So it's kind of funny that, again, we don't tell each other our stories, but this week <laughs> we both accidentally did conspiracies. So <gasps> I guess this it's is a like... a conspiracy episode. Yeah, it's like a conspiracy podcast now. So if you, if you thought this was a factual history podcast, you may have been mistaken gotcha (laughs) we're diving into the unknown um so this week my story is bigfoot an enigma (gasps) of the mystical (laughs) um so actually i also didn't get the idea myself uh last (laughs) night it was her friend uh kayla she turned 21 and obviously she couldn't have a birthday party because you know lockdown everything um, but our other friend, Rachel and I, we just snuck into her house and like surprised her. So <laughs> it was like nine o'clock at nine o'clock at night. And I realized I was like, oh my God, I forgot to do research. I forgot to pick a story Aww. and I completely like slipped my mind. And Rachel was like, oh, you should just do like Bigfoot. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Gotta love Rachel. <laughs> so yeah, I have no idea. Um, a lot of people have strong opinions if they think Bigfoot is real or not. I'm kind of, you know, up in the air, but hopefully, Katie, by the end of this episode, you can decide for yourself. Yes, I'm excited. Um, And also for this research, I definitely looked at more articles than I have for probably all of my other stories combined. (laughs) I I don't know how I got so deep. I think how many tabs I have open, like 20 tabs. Oh my god! I even got information. There's a whole page about it on the National Guard government website so you're kidding yeah no so yeah there's a lot of information out there so hopefully this isn't too long but i got real into it all right so you might be asking yourself who is bigfoot well 
He is a six to nine foot tall, hairy ape-like man who walks and stands upright on his back legs. So that's just like the general description of what he might look like. Right. Um, I can picture it. Yes. And according to legends, he can't speak human languages, but instead grunts and whistles and gestures to communicate with people and other animals. Hmm. Um, And based on the different kind of tracks that people have reported, Bigfoot gets his name from his supposed 16-inch feet. And I've actually heard 16 to like 20 inches. So, yeah, pretty big feet. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) And uh, Bigfoot actually has a lot of different names depending on what region you're from. Um, And I'll get into that a little bit more in the the history part. But um, you, you may hear him referred to as a Sasquatch, a Yeti, or the Missing Link. And that name actually comes from the idea that Bigfoot is the missing genetic link between humans and our ape evolutionary ancestors. Ooh. Yeah. So people, I mean, obviously if you believe evolution, which I think most people do, I think that's like a, a fact. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, people are saying that they are like the Yetis or Bigfeet are the connection between what we originally were and what we are now. They just evolved differently interesting yeah and so bigfoot is actually believed to be in the pacific northwest region of north america so that includes washington state holla uh, <laughs> oregon northern california british columbia and alaska so it's pretty widespread and when i first like whenever i thought of bigfoot i thought it was literally like one bigfoot right but after doing but research it's multiple? like yeah it's like supposed to be uh like a breed of creature like species yeah species so there's many of them apparently all throughout that region hmm. interesting yes. so basically we you i guess now live in the perfect place to go bigfoot hunting uh, or searching and not hunting i would never hunt bigfoot and i'll tell you why <laughs> uh so diving into the history of kind of the legend of bigfoot um it's not super clear where it exactly originated but there are tons of different stories and theories um and basically so many different it comes from like native american and indigenous stories and there's so Hmm. many different ones in this pacific northwest area and they all have different kind of tales and beliefs about this creature um so i actually think that gives it more credibility because if it was just like one tribe had this one idea that there was a bigfoot like it could have been made up or mistaken or whatever. But if all of these different tribes, these different cultures have the same kind of account of running into the creature, like I feel like that's a little bit more believable and it's a little bit more widespread within the community. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so like you said, um, I've always loved Bigfoot since he's such a big <laughs> part of the PNW culture. Um, and I actually first heard about his origins in a class that I took at the UW. Um, I took go dogs. Go dogs. I took a Pacific Northwest Native American art appreciation course, <laughs> and it was super fun. Um, and I learned a bunch of like stories about indigenous tribes and and basically that entire West Coast area that makes up the Bigfoot region. Um, yeah. We should just rename this half of the country Bigfoot. <laughs> the Bigfoot region. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I can't remember exactly which tribe, but. My teacher had said that the idea of Bigfoot originated from these carvings that um, they created in this area. 
and they created these like really large man carvings, but the man was whistling to signal, you know, fishing or hunting and like communicate while they're out spread apart. Um, and so it kind of like this big carving has this big mouth and it's kind of in an O shape and it looks a little bit like what we would think of a Sasquatch would look like. And so I think she was saying that that's kind of where people got the image of Sasquatch. Um, okay. So that was my first understanding. But once I did more research, I kind of found a little bit more deeper history. So like I said, there's so many different tribes and historic stories that tie into this like mountain man, Bigfoot. And I found a cool website that looks really old. It looks like it was made in the 2000 like year. <laughs> um, and it's called nativelanguages.org. And it goes through 24 different tribal languages for Bigfoot. So wow. yeah, so that's at least 24 different tribes and um, cultures that believe in or have some kind of historical stories about a quote unquote Bigfoot. Um, and basically there are two main ideas about what this creature is. So some tribes believe that Bigfoot was this huge, dangerous, harmful beast that everyone should fear. Um, he, he would attack people while others saw him as just like a clumsy, shy creature with good intentions. Oh, yeah. So I like the, cute. I like the last one better. Cause that's kind of how I always thought <laughs> that the story went like, right. but apparently for a really long time, he was known as being this like vicious beast. Um, oh, poor guy. I know. Just He's just misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> um, so something unexpected that I read from a couple different sites was that people um, believe that Bigfoot, although he was like a human-ape hybrid, he could still mate with human women. So some of the origin oh. stories claim that he was a dangerous predator and you had to be aware of him and like when you're traveling in the forest so oh god that sounds terrifying uh yeah. that was not the fun story i heard as a kid growing up no no definitely that's not what they tell you around the campfire <laughs> no not at all um but some other people feared that there he was like a beast who was a trickster and he would attack humans and steal their children so really not that oh great i know why do people do them like that? <laughs> I know. Well, good news. Most of the stories were actually pretty pos positive. Um, and they're based on the fact that he is really shy and benign. So he hides in the woods. Um, but he may mistakenly take things from people, even including other people. Just because, <laughs> he, yeah, just because he's curious and he wants to, Aww. you know, see what it is and maybe make some friends. So, yeah, yeah, that I like that version a little bit better. Me too. Um, so since there's so many different versions of this Bigfoot tale, I just wanted to dive into one tribal history in particular. So Katie, you lived in Washington for about four years and you've been to Canada mm -hmm. probably a few too many times. <laughs> Got me there. <laughs> um, does the Coast Salish tribe sound familiar to you at all? No. <laughs> That's okay. Not at all. <laughs> so this tribe's territory is from the Columbia River in Oregon all the way up okay. through um, the Washington coast and then ends in BC, Canada. So okay. it's a huge region, but it's basically exactly like where we went to school and then up through Canada. Right. Um, and so it's actually funny because I didn't know this, but apparently the Puget Sound is also called the Salish Sea. So yeah, a lot. I've heard Salish a lot growing up. Like a lot of things in this area are named after that, 
and in Canada too. So that's just why I asked if you had noticed or if you remember. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could say I had. <laughs> well, no worries. So I chose to talk about this one because they're, uh, they have the Chinook dialect, which is actually a, another school in like next to my house, which is kind of funny. Um, <laughs> and in that language, they actually coined the name Sasquatch for the mystical beast. Oh, wow. Yeah, so on that list of like 24 languages, um, they all, everything was like completely words I'd never heard of before. But <laughs> yeah, this is the area where the tribe called it the Sasquatch and it was spelled and probably pronounced differently, obviously in the native language. Right. But yeah, so their belief was that, um, once again, he was this giant benign creature who leaves 20 inch footprints and they believe that there wasn't just one Sasquatch. Instead, there were dozens and they just all roamed the woods away from the water. Um, and so they claim that they had always been seen by the native Salish people. It was like a part of the culture, a part of the area. It was yeah. just like they weren't hidden like they are today. Um, and they also claim that these Sasquatches may have had supernatural powers oh. that caused people to go unconscious, making it easy for them to steal human women to make their wives and have Sasquatch human babies with. Hmm. So, okay. Yeah, this story is a little bit of a combo of like the terrifying woman snatcher and the <laughs> nice, friendly, you know, cuddly Sasquatch. Um, sure. But apparently, they also have the power to turn themselves invisible. And so that's why they never show themselves to the white men or the settlers who came to the area. They basically like cloaked themselves when everyone came. Wow. Um, and but they'd still leave behind footprints. But they st- yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll get all into that. And although they do, like the Sasquatches have caused trouble for the Salish people, they would never hunt or kill the creatures because they were clearly intelligent beings. So Mm. that's, yeah, they kind of, you know, saw them as a human hybrid and a lot smarter than just like the average animal. Right. So aside from, um, you know, this origin stories and these historic tales, Bigfoot has had a huge cultural phenomenon, which has led to hundreds of people becoming completely obsessed and like even creating societies for hunting and searching for Sasquatch. Um, One of them is the Sasquatch Close Encounter Network for Interspecies Communication. Oh, snap. Very official. And I actually used their website for a lot of my sources. Not going to (laughs) lie. Thank you, those people. (laughs) It was like their website is actually really funny. They have um, a quote actually on the very top of their um, their like homepage. And it says, when your people will come to treat other or treat each other as equals and all life is important and sacred. They will start to be ready to reconnect with other two leggeds like my people and the star elders. So it sounds a little far fetched. Um, but you know, I they sound like the experts, so I'm gonna go with what they say. I agree. I love it. <laughs> All right, so now getting into some of the sightings of Bigfoot, because that's the interesting part and the juicy stuff. The juicy stuff. So sightings have been reported as early as 1904 um, by settlers in Oregon who claimed to have seen a hairy man in the woods. Ooh. So all of these sightings, just want to say, they're not, they're from like non-indigenous people because obviously the people from the tribes claim that they've been seeing him for like hundreds of years. 
Right. Yeah. So these are like new age sightings, you know, 1900s and earlier or in later. Um, And so then 20 years later in 1924, a group of miners on Mount St. Helens in Washington claimed that they were attacked by a group of giant wild apes and recorded it to the Oregon news. So I don't think apes are uh, living in Mount St. Helens. I've never seen a (laughs) monkey. It's not their natural location. (laughs) No, not their habitat. Um, So that one is pretty interesting. And then in 1958, a bunch of loggers who were working in the woods around the Cascade Mountains, also in Washington, um, they would continuously report seeing creatures and giant footprints on the logging roads. So, yeah, this one, um, this is how they first made the name Bigfoot public because the loggers kept seeing these giant feet marks and they're like, ooh, Hmm. ooh, it's such a big foot. So, so Bigfoot is not like a native indigenous name for this creature. It is it's from just a little logging nickname. A little not logging nickname. Everyone needs to have one. Um, but the most famous sighting actually came from a camera crew in 1967. So Bob Gimlin and Roger Peterson were filming horseback riding scenes in a bluff or it's called in Bluff Creek, Northern California. Have you ever heard of it? No, I've never heard of it. It was worth a shot since you're from California. Um, But anyways, so they were out riding horseback and they were filming these like, you know, rodeo scenes in the, like in the woods kind of. Um, And they caught the infamous ape-like creature walking upright across a sandbar in the wide open daylight. So no. Yeah. So this is where you get that really famous image of Bigfoot, like mid walk with his arms swinging, swinging his arms. Yeah. And then like looking straight at the camera. So Mm -hmm. I've actually watched this video like a hundred times today while I was writing these notes. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, he's literally just like walking on by like he's right. You know, hi, hiding his business. Yeah. Like swinging his arms, walking like, like a man. He doesn't even look like, you know, how gorillas walk and they like kind of lumber right. over he was just like straight upright walking across the field um and so this has been one of the most analyzed pieces of footage in history i bet because in 1967 like obviously the technology of editing film like wasn't super advanced so right. a lot of people claim that maybe it was like a person in a gorilla suit and there have been tons of debunkers who claim that they were the one actually in an ape suit. Like one guy took a lie detector test and was like, <laughs> yeah, it was me. I was in this ape suit. Another person claims that they sold these uh, Peterson and Gimlin people the ape suit. Oh, my um, gosh. So, but the other part of this whole thing is not just the footage, but the massive tracks that were left behind. So, oh. yeah, like I said, he walked across a sandbar. So once they got it on footage... They obviously like went to the sandbar where he just walked and they were able to preserve and capture the huge tracks and like evidence of him walking. Yeah. So a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State, Jeff Meldrum, he uses this footage actually in his university lectures um, to have students learn and point out the muscular features of the animal in the footage. So Hmm. when I first saw this video... I was really skeptical that it, I didn't think it was a man in an ape suit because, you know, when you see a guy in an ape suit, like the suit's obviously like kind of baggy and like mm-hmm. men are like max like six, five or something, you know? Right. This creature is really tall. It's like eight feet tall and it's completely filled out. Like you can see all of its muscles as it's moving right. and you can see them moving and like, you know, how they would, nor- an animal would normally move while they walk. So... 
Um, it was really cool. I saw a video of this professor like pointing out and highlighting the different bones and muscles. Um, and then he analyzed the footprint of how the weight distribution changed like with every step. And a human oh, yeah. foot in like a suit would have a much smaller weight distribution. But this this footprint, like, I, I don't know the scientific details, <laughs> but it, it had evidence of a different bone structure of the feet. Wow. Yeah. So that was really exciting um, to see. This guy's super passionate about it. Yeah, no kidding. And yeah, like I said, a gorilla suit made in the 60s probably wouldn't be that advanced to have all those right. parts to it. Um, but we never know. It still could have been. So there was another big Bigfoot enthusiast, uh, Peter Byrne, and he was known in the 70s for his obsession with proving the existence of Bigfoot. <laughs> so not the best reputation. But in 1976, there were two U.S. forest workers, and they claimed to have seen a beast man while working in the woods. And, okay, these guys, they were both biologists, and they worked for the U.S. government, but instead, they called the Bigfoot Information Center with this information. <laughs> and, of course, Peter was the director. So he came right away to Oregon and immediately started exploring the area of the sighting. And his first thought was that the trees were way too narrow and close apart to have a broad-shouldered man like travel through the woods mm -hmm. unscathed. Um, so he thought that this was a false sighting. He thought these guys were kind of making it up. But then he discovers this tuft of hair slash fur with some like skin attached to it stuck on a branch on, on the trees. Snap. Yeah. So now we've got DNA evidence. So now we, he's like, oh, this is it. Like this is the DNA evidence that we need. You know, obviously like I was right. He didn't go and scathe. Like he got hit or whatever. So he right. actually, he takes the sample straight to the FBI for testing. <laughs> and, okay. And he urged the FBI to take it seriously. He said, we need to know this answer. Like, please, this is very important. It's not a joke. The public right. needs to know. And he never heard back from them for 40 Aww. years. Well, it turns out they did take it seriously. In fact, they took it very seriously and they ran numerous tests on the sample for years. You're okay. kidding. So I don't know why they had it for 40 years, but it wasn't until Peter was 92 years old that the FBI finally released the results of their test, claiming that the sample was of dear family origin. Come on, 40 years to figure 40, that out? Yeah, there's no way. I mean okay maybe but like first of all they could have just not said anything because True. it's 40 years had passed they never told anyone they were testing it anyways like this guy's 92 years old right no one's gonna like knocking on their door being like hey you have those results yet <laughs> um but yeah they did release it was dear family so i'm just curious why it was so classified and confidential for that long right that is suspicious. Very suspicious. Um, so that is all I have for like the sightings. I just wanted to add one little note about um, Bigfoot being part of pop culture because <laughs> being from the Pacific Northwest, it really is like a big thing here. Yeah. Um, so throughout the 70s, Bigfoot was sort of this like elusive, potentially dangerous creature in the woods, kind of still stemming off of those native legends. Um, but it wasn't until the 1980s where this image of Bigfoot that was captured in the Peterson Gimlin film, it started to be associated with environmentalism. So mm -hmm. that's where um, Bigfoot believers sort of embrace the idea that he is a symbol for the unknown, um, particularly in nature, and that the idea that humans are not alone, 
Therefore, we should respect the natural land and conserve wildlife for other amazing creatures, just like Bigfoot. Oh, so yeah, that's why. What a good message. It's so yeah. I want to end on positive note. That's why if you go to like REI, there's so many like Mm -hmm. Bigfoot stickers, and it's all about like (laughs) leave tracks, not trash or something. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, that's that's the mystical story of Bigfoot. So, Katie. Uh, have I made you a believer or not? Like, kind of. <laughs> I, I feel like Bigfoot's not something I, like, really ever considered that much. Mm-hmm. But, like, I'm kind of inclined to believe it. I'm also fairly certain, the entire time you've been talking about this, I've been trying to remember. I'm pretty sure there's, like, an episode of Phineas and Ferb where they're, like, <laughs> looking for Bigfoot. And they, I don't know if they find him. But that's all I can think about is oh my gosh, Bigfoot and Phineas and Ferb. Well, I did not get any of this information from Phineas and Ferb. So <laughs> I'm probably all wrong but (laughs) yeah we really should have consulted that yeah my bad we'll do a correction episode next time (laughs) yeah I thought it was just interesting doing the research because there were obviously all these like people who are firm believers and a lot of them are scientists which is kind of the part that made me be like okay maybe they like know something I don't um and there was this one guy who he has like the world's largest collection of bigfoot footprints like tracks and Apparently, he knows he can tell the difference between like a fake one and a real one. So he's like, Oh, I have like, there's all these fake ones, but like these ones are the real ones. So I'm like, hmm, Interesting. If he says so. Yeah, right. <laughs> Should we fake one and test him on it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I definitely encourage people to look up the video of the 1976 or 67 one of him walking across the sandbar in California. Cause I feel like that is the only real evidence evidence that we have to analyze obviously people have like photos but a lot of times it just looks like shadows like it's not really this is like a full-grown monster just like walk it's like as if you're walking down your neighborhood and your neighbor is like hi there (laughs) but it's a bigfoot just taking his morning stroll and it's not a deviant or a scandalous story but it is kind of out of this world i kind of into it i think of it as the same thing as like ancient aliens (laughs) yeah no i totally agree i feel like our topics are getting like a little broader but it's kind of fun it's kind of fun i'll bring it back you know to the good old ghost and true crime maybe next week but for now but no i'm thrilled that we got to talk about bigfoot yeah two big conspiracies this week exactly yeah well i guess that's all we have for you guys um if you are big believers or big non-believers of either of our conspiracies please let us know you can dm us on instagram at deviant little darlings or you can email us on gmail deviant little darlings at gmail.com or you can even write in when you rate and review on apple podcasts oh Um, yeah yeah tell us what you think let us know your beliefs And like Olivia said, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. And yeah, on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and review us. And subscribe and download and (laughs) do what you do best. All right. Well, I think we will leave you with that this week and we will see you next Friday. Have a good Memorial Day weekend, everybody. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Bye.